Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to More Than Amused podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to More Than a Muse. Um, I'm Stani. And I am Sadie. And wherever you are, we're so happy you're here and that you are listening today and that you are here to learn more about an amazing artist. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. Sadie told me who she's talking about, and I'm really excited because this is like childhood memories, you know? Mm-hmm. So many good ones. Well, that's what, when you talked about Jane Austen just a couple weeks ago, and we talked about, you know, the movie Pride and Prejudice mm-hmm. with Kira Knightley, like that's one of my like go-to comfort movies. And so after we recorded that episode, I was like, I'm like, oh, what are my other comfort movies? And both of them are The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. Like those Aww. two movies are my go-tos whenever I need like a pick-me-up, right? Love mm-hmm. them. And so I was like, oh my gosh, we should do Julie Andrews. Now, of course, I don't think she's um unknown and maybe not underappreciated, but I realized that like, even though those are my all-time favorite movies, I really don't know that much about Julie Andrews. Mm-hmm. And as far as like really anything else she's done or how she got there. So, you know, like I said, I know she's not the typical forgotten artist that we try to do. But hey, I wanted to learn more about her. And I figured our listeners might not know a lot about her either. So, yeah, no, I think it's a great thing to cover because, yeah, I don't know a lot about her personal life mm-hmm. at all. I do know that she struggled with like vocal problems right before yeah. she was on The Princess Diaries and her singing in that second movie was like a really, really big deal. Yeah, exactly. So I know that, but yeah, I don't know a lot about her, but I love The Sound of Music. I actually just watched it recently after, um, is it Richard Plummer? Is that what yeah. his name Yeah, oh, is? Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer, that's what it is. So after Christopher Plummer died. Oh, that was um, sad. Yeah, we watched The Sound of Music. And the music is so good, and she just has such a lovely voice, and it's such a good movie. Yeah, I think I have, like, a very distinct memory of, like, my grandma being like, Sadie, you should watch The Sound of Music, like, as a really young person, because, you know, I liked music, and mm-hmm. she showed me all of these musicals. I remember watching, like, The King and I at my grandma's house, and then one of them was The Sound of Music, and I was just like whoa (laughs) like this is Mm -hmm. this is amazing and at the time I wanted to be Liesl she's the one who sings 16 going on 17 I think it's Liesl yeah and then now and then as I've grown older I'm just like I love Maria I want to be Maria everything about Maria is great so (laughs) seriously like Maria is the one to aspire to be Liesl is still Liesl aspires to be Maria exactly but as a child all I wanted was to be 16 going on 17 with boys to sing too (laughs) Liesl literally dates a Nazi so 
That's scary. So poor choice of men. And Maria yeah. was with Captain Von Trapp. So we, oh, we good hope. choice in men. What I was going to say about like, you know how with the film tropes episode, we were talking about Greece and how like once we grew older, we like realized what actually everything was, you know, mm-hmm. it's the kind of the same thing with the sound of music where as a kid, I was like, oh, yeah, the governess and all oh, they had to leave. And then like as you get older, it's like, oh, this they are literally fleeing Nazi Germany like uh-huh oh okay like this suddenly is making a lot more sense <laughs> as far as context goes yeah no it there's definitely a greater depth to that movie than uh, I think any of our little childhood selves gave it credit oh, for <laughs> exactly this is like the opposite way like with Greece it was like horrified and then like with the sound of music it's just like greater reverence almost for just like yes. what this plot is Oh my goodness. Such a good movie. So a fun little thing that we're going to try this month, if you want to join us, is we are going to read a book over the course of the month and do a podcast episode at the end of the month Mm -hmm. talking about it. And what's kind of cool is we've actually mentioned this book before. It's on our book list. We actually have an episode that we um, referenced it a lot in. So I think it's going to be a fun one for everyone. It's called Fangirls by Hannah Ewens. Um, The subtitle is Scenes from Modern Music Culture, and my favorite part is it is available on Amazon as an ebook. Oh, yes. So it's cheaper. You can totally get it. It's very accessible. Hopefully everyone has access to Amazon. We we did a fangirl episode before, but there's so much to talk about on the world of fangirls, and I loved this book, but we didn't get to finish talking about it. Like she mentioned. Yeah. Neither of us had time to finish it before we did the episode because mm-hmm. we only had that week to research. So we just thought it would be fun to actually finish it, especially since we both own it. Yep. And then talk about it with all of you, especially since our fangirls episode is one of all of your favorites. favorites. Yeah. We're all so, fangirls. I can tell. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. We've all got a little bit of that in us. Definitely. So, so yeah, if you yeah. want to follow along this month, Pick it up, read it, and then at the end of the month, we'll talk about it. It'll be like a little bit mm-hmm. of a book. We'll have our own little Women in the Arts book Empowerment club. Book Club going on. Yeah. Plus, it's just a really entertaining book. She talks a oh, lot about so One Direction fans mm-hmm. and literally dedicated to the book for every girl who has ever had an obsession. Like, I mean, come on. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> yeah. So check it out. We'll post about it on our Instagram as well. And then just look forward to the end of the month for our bonus episode where we'll discuss this book more. Exactly. Okay, well, I'm just going to dive into Julie Andrews and her early mm-hmm. life. So she was born October 1st, 1935 in England. Um, her mother, Barbara Ward Wells, was married to Edward Charles or Ted Wells. And he was a teacher of metalwork and woodwork. So this is interesting that Julie Andrews was actually conceived as a result of an affair that her mom had with a family friend. And apparently Andrews discovered her true parentage from her mom in 1950. So when she was, what, 15, which would probably be like, I can't even imagine like how you would make sense of that as a 15 year old. That would be a lot to handle. I know. Like, just I'm like, just oh. this casual little like, oh, and by the way, um, but it wasn't publicly disclosed until Julie Andrews autobiography in 2008. Mm. So okay. that's when she brought it up. 
so with her, you know, she was born in the mid 30s. And so she was in England during the outbreak of World War Two, which is crazy. Her parents kind of went their separate ways and were soon divorced, which sounds like it was a good choice considering there was affairs yeah. going on. But they both remarried. Um, her mom remarried to someone named Ted Andrews in 1943. And then um, her dad remarried in 1944 to a woman named Winifred Maud um, Burkhead, I believe. Yeah. And apparently she was a war widow and a former hairstylist. So anyways, just really interesting how um, the war had affected both of them. Wells, which was, her, of course, her father, assisted with evacuating children to Surrey during the Blitz while her mother joined her husband in entertaining the troops um, through the Entertainment's National Service Association. So they were both pretty hmm. involved in the war in their own ways, which I I don't know. It's just like weird that I'm like, oh, they, like they were both like she was alive for World War Two. It's just crazy. I don't know to like realize yeah, that. No, I was that's so close to bring that up. Like when you think of the sound of music being filmed about mm-hmm. World War Two. You kind mm-hmm. of imagine it like a much more distant event. But the right? fact that like Julie Andrews herself was alive during yeah. that part, even though like she was a child, but still that means that like not that much time passed before the sound of music was filmed and, and she like was she in was the movie. Playing those moments. Which yeah. I know. I, I feel like that must have been surreal. Like yeah. I feel like it's like the equivalent of like someone making a movie in like ten years about 9-11 and like someone who knows someone is like yeah playing. like that would be crazy that would be crazy has it been 10 years since 9-11 it's been over 10 uh, years hasn't it it's been 20 years oh okay that's what i thought so isn't it just so weird yeah though? that's weird huh. Anyways, that's really i just thought that was like crazy i like i didn't really realize that the sound of music was so close to i didn't either yeah i the thought it was World much more distant yeah and it's like um, it's like one of those yeah. moments of like oh like i think of stuff as so long ago but like there's people a lot of people who were alive then and like yeah. remember it and that's just horrifying that's super weird it was even weird to me like my grandpa said he was born on the day the war ended and that was always a weird concept to me Whoa. is that it was like he came into the world right after this whole horrid thing just happened yeah (laughs) so that was always strange but that does mean that my other grandparents were born already they were just so little I never even thought about it but yeah Mm -hmm. like World War II is a lot closer than I think any of us think about yeah exactly really strange so you know like I said her parents they were entertainers so I mean her her mom and her stepfather Um, In 1940, her dad sent her to live with her mom and her stepfather, um, who Wells, her father, thought would be better able to provide for his talented daughter's artistic training. So it sounds like that from a very young age, she was already displaying interest in music and the arts. And, you know, considering the mom and the stepfather were entertainers, they he obviously realized that that would probably be a better fit for them. But according to Julie Andrews' 2008 autobiography, which was called Home, like Andrews had been used to calling her stepfather Uncle Ted, um, but her mom like suggested it would be more appropriate to refer to her stepfather as like Pop or something while like her actual father could remain dad. Um, But apparently she didn't like that. So I don't know if she didn't really 
like her stepfather at the time like the Andrews family was not very well off didn't really live in a good area of London she has said that like the war was just a very black period in her life which Mm. makes sense yeah Um, makes perfect sense and according to Andrews as well is that her father was violent and was a bit of an alcoholic so it doesn't sound like like you know the best home life obviously and like her early childhood early formative memories are right within world war ii so just really i don't know interesting and i like never had even like really realized or made that connection that you know she would have grown up and been alive during that time yeah no that never would have crossed my mind but you know her the stage career of her mother and her stepfather improved um which i'm assuming is you know with the ending of the war um you know and just in general life could kind of go on and there could be more focus again on the arts um and because of that they were able to afford just better home um and you know better surroundings and they as the war ended, they actually moved back to um, the Andrews hometown of Hersham in England. So this is fun, though. So her stepfather, though, at this time sponsored lessons for her. And it was first and originally at the Independent Arts Educational School in London. So it was actually the Cone Ritman School, which was an mm-hmm. arts education place in London. From thereafter, she worked with a concert soprano and voice instructor Madame Lillian Stiles Allen and Andrews has said of her that she had an enormous influence on me adding she was my third mother I've gotten more mothers and fathers than anyone in this world which is funny <laughs> considering all of her you know step yeah. parents and all of that <laughs> that's kind of a cute way to look at it though to be like mm-hmm. I just have a lot of mothers and fathers <laughs> yeah like I'm like I feel like that's a very optimistic outlook mm-hmm. on the situation yeah definitely so in the memoir that the voice um teacher wrote it's called julie andrews my star pupil she recorded that the range and accuracy and tone of julie's voice amazed me she had possessed the range the rare gift of absolute pitch but apparently julie andrews herself kind of refutes this and in her autobiography um she says that madam was sure that i could do mozart and rossini but to be honest i never was of her own voice she says i had a very pure white thin voice a four octave range dogs would come from miles around and then after her time at this school she continued her academic education at the nearby woodbrook school um which was just a local state school in the city that she was at so um you know she is taking these voice lessons and pursuing this and at the side and it begins in 1945 julie andrews she performed with her parents There's a quote here where she says, then came the day when I was told I must go to bed in the afternoon because I was going to be allowed to sing with mummy and pop in the evening. So and then during these initial shows, apparently she stood on a beer crate um, to sing into the microphone, performing either a solo or a duet with her stepfather while her mother played the piano. She later stated that it must have been ghastly, but it seemed to go down all right, which (laughs) I think is just cute. Every like quote, I just imagine Julie Andrews's voice and it just Mm -hmm. brings me joy. (laughs) (laughs) so her career breakthrough happened though when her stepfather introduced her to a managing director named val parnell who's apparently moss empires controlled um the prominent performance venues in london so at the age 12 she made her first professional solo debut at the london hippodrome i believe um and she was actually singing a very difficult aria which was just sweet um to 
Titiana, I believe, as part of a musical review, which was called Starlight Ruth. And she played at that for one year. Of her role in that Starlit Roof um, musical review, she recalled that there was this wonderful American person and comedian, Wally Bogue, who made balloon animals. He would say, is there any little girl or boy in the audience who would like one of these? And I would rush up on stage and say, I'd like one, please. And then he would chat to me and I'd tell him I sang. I was fortunate enough in that I was fortunate in that I absolutely stopped the show cold. I mean, the audience went crazy. So I'm imagining what the show was was like that was like part of the bit like he would be like oh you know is there anyone who wants a balloon animal and it was part of the show that she would go up and then be like well I'll sing for one and then she would sing and the audience would go crazy which is very fun I know so her professional and like performing continued as at 13 she became the youngest solo performer ever to be seen in the royal variety performance before king george and queen elizabeth um which is cool apparently after she followed her parents into radio and television um she performed in musical interludes of the bbc light program comedy show called up the pole so she was like doing a lot of things she appeared at like this west end theater um at the london casino where she played one year each as princess oh dear Badrul Badur in Aladdin <laughs> and the egg in Humpty Dumpty um, okay. and she also performed in roles of Jack and the Beanstalk Little Riding Hood starred as the lead role in Cinderella and also she voiced Princess Zila in the English dub of the Italian animated movie La Rosa di Baghdad renamed the singing princess so crazy like this is her first film yeah that's her first venture into any voiceover work and this is her as a very young child can you imagine being like a princess one moment and then the next moment you're an egg (laughs) i know i'm like oh the egg and humpty dumpty that's fine yeah like that's theater for you (laughs) one second you're a princess the next minute you're an egg (laughs) Uh i love that so she's doing tons of work as a kid and this is when she transitions to Broadway. Oh. So on September 30th, 1954, on the eve of her 19th birthday, she made her Broadway debut as Polly Brown in the London musical The Boyfriend. Um, I'm not familiar with this one. I don't think, you know, obviously this isn't one that has stood the test of time like others have. But she was recommended to the director of it um, for the part by the actress Hattie Jacques, whom Andrew regards as a catalyst for her career. Um, Apparently, Julie was really anxious about moving to New York at the time, um, as she was both the breadwinner and caretaker for her family. But she took the part upon her father's encouragement. encouragement. So I think she was really hesitant to do it. She didn't want to leave. But because of her father's encouragement, she decided to. And she's also said that at the time, she really had no idea how to really research a role or study for a, or study a script um, and cites that Cypher's direction as being phenomenal. And I guess the boyfriend became a hit um, and Julie Andrews received tons of praise and critics called her the standout of the show, which wow. is obviously amazing. Um, so this musical ran for one year and then... Andrews was approached to audition to Alan J. Lerner and Friedrich Lowe for the role of Eliza Doodlittle in My Fair Lady, which I think was the original running of it on Broadway. 
she was offered the part by Richard Rogers, like, you know, as in Rogers and Hammerstein. It's fine. Hammerstein, whatever. During the third reading. And she later wrote that she could be Eliza and could find and understand her. If only someone was to gently unravel the knotted string inside my stomach. So she's just so nervous all the time, like for all of these. But I think like it's like paired with like insecurity, but also just like knowing that she could do it if she can just like overcome this, you know, this is cool. So the director for that um, musical Moss Hart spent 48 consecutive hours solely with Julie Andrews during rehearsal um, where they, quote, hammered through each scene. Andrews has later stated that the good man had stripped her feelings bare, molded, needed, and helped her become the character of Eliza and made her part of her soul. Um, she's referred to it as the best acting lesson she had ever received and that later cementing the role with her own touches and flourishes and continued to work on the character throughout her two-year run so I think like those 48 hours is probably like acting class intensive and yeah I think she credits that to her being really being able to take on that character March 15th in 1956 is when My Fair Lady opened on Broadway at the Mark Heilinger Theater um, it was a huge success um, audience and critics loved it though apparently this is funny after opening the show she learned that she needed to tone down her cockney accent because the american audience couldn't understand her and then apparently though there was a change which was reserved at the west end performance a year later um so i was reversed so i think that like once they went to a place that like back to london the west end whatever she went back to the extreme cockney accent because you know the americans weren't sh- like the english obviously were fine but the americans were struggling with how good her cockney accent was <laughs> oh stupid americans i know i thought that was so funny <laughs> that's a really funny they're like you've got to tone it down no one can understand, understand what you're you. saying i know <laughs> Oh man. Um, she's described her performance as Eliza though as the great lear- learning period of her life, which is really cool. Yeah. Um so Rogers, who was of course the writer of this music, was so impressed with her performance and her talent that with her run of My Fair Lady, she was featured in the Rogers and Hammerstein's television musical Cinderella, um which was written apparently especially for her, which is so cool. Um, It was broadcasted live on CBS on March 31st, 1957, and it had an estimated 107 million viewers. And she was nominated for an Emmy Award for this role. Wow. Right. And but apparently she describes that performance as incredibly hard and stated that it took her years to realize the enormity of the production. So it's like one of those things that it's like she didn't even realize how big it was until years later, which I think... (laughs) so and then during this time too 1957 apparently she releases a debut solo album called the last with the delicate air which harked back to her british music hall days um which included like performances of english folk songs as well as the world war ii anthem london pride it's not on spotify i checked but i did look it up Hmm. on youtube and i was like interesting like it definitely has the like it almost like has like the lute kind of sound like I wasn't expecting that but it's definitely Julie Andrews and yeah that was the album she made so with this her career starts like taking off um she guest starred on the Ed Sullivan show um was making tons of different tv appearances she co-starred in Julie and Carol at Carnegie Hall which was a CBS special with Carol Burnett they cast her apparently in 1960 um she was cast in as Queen oh 
Guinevere in Camelot, um, along with Richard Burton, who okay. was King Arthur. Andrews apparently called that work monumental due to her heavy set costuming and her really detailed literary themes. Camelot um, got like adequate reviews, so it wasn't as well received as My Fair Lady, but she kind of credits those bad reviews to um, offset production issues as well as the comparisons to My Fair Lady. And that musical was then was therefore revised during the Broadway run and after. So I don't know. Just interesting that yeah. like she's just doing working a lot, getting so much recognition. But that role apparently wasn't wasn't as successful. But you will see that it ended up being very important for her. So at this time in 1962, casting for the film adaption of My Fair Lady began. And of course, Julie Andrews hoped to play it to reprise her role because she originated it. But the studio head, Jack Warner, um, decided that Julie Andrews lacked sufficient name recognition. And so instead, that part was given to Audrey Hepburn, which granted, like, I think Audrey Hepburn does very well in that movie. I I love that movie. But Julie Andrews apparently really wanted that. And apparently Jack Warner, though, has said that the decision was really just made for financial purposes, stating that in my business, I have to I have to know what, who brings people and their money to a cinema box office. Audrey Hepburn had never made a financial flop. And I think Julie has like since reconciled that like, OK, it makes sense that he did that. And like her success with Broadway, like it wasn't obviously the level that Audrey Hepburn was on. But she stated that she does wish that there could be some recording of her performance of Eliza Doolittle because I'm sure it would have been amazing to see Julie yeah. Andrews be well Eliza and it's Doolittle. hard to like she originated the role you know like she kind exactly. of made it popular and then to have someone else take on your role because you weren't cool famous enough, enough. Or, yeah like yeah. you lacked the star power when it's like that's mine like I yeah like, like she probably is like the reason hard. why it was even that big is because mm-hmm. it did so well and she did so well yeah so that's tough there is I no know. denying though audrey hepburn star power is very hefty so. i know so, like that's the thing it's like yeah. he was right so <laughs> yeah um that's so 1962 she's turned down for this but in 1963 is kind of when she was first approached for mary poppins and she started like working that role so going back to Camelot you know apparently that wasn't a very well-received musical but Walt Disney had seen her performance in it and because of that performance he offered her the role of Mary Poppins apparently Julie Andrews initially declined that because at the time she was actually pregnant which I also should mention that she she did get married at some time in here I'll go through her personal life at the end but yeah, you're um, good. <laughs> at the time of this, she was pregnant. So she returned to London to give birth. Um, but Disney like insisted and pretty much said, we'll wait for you. Like whenever you're done, we'll wait for you. Like I, I just love that he knew she would be perfect to, for Mary Poppins. After the birth of her daughter, P.L. Travers, which was, of course, the writer of the book series um, of Mary Poppins, called Andrews telling her, well, you're much too pretty, of course, but you've got the nose for it which I just love, which I mean, we've, I mean, have you seen that movie, um, Saving Mr. Banks? Yeah, I saw, I don't remember it very well. I don't know if I saw the whole thing all the way through, but I've definitely seen the majority of it. Basically though, it sounds like that author was not super behind that movie, which makes that quote even funny that it, 
sounds like every step of the way she was just dragging her feet through the mud <laughs> wasn't she like extremely upset that disney wanted it and like yeah yeah like so. maybe disney was a little bit shady in how this movie came to be but i'm also very thankful that it exists so i don't know <laughs> During this time of film filming, apparently they rented a house in L.A. Um, for her family to stay in during production. Apparently, she like she says that she relied largely on instinct for her portrayal, um, conceptualizing her background and giving the p- character a particular walk, and it turned out stance to suit her ladylike sensibility. She's referred to production as unrelenting, given the physical exertion and technical details, saying that she could not have asked for a better introduction to film. So I'm sure she learned so much from this. Mary Poppins was very successful. It became the biggest box office draw in Disney history. Variety lauded Andrew's performance as a a single triumph. Um, She performs as easily as she sings, displaying a fresh type of beauty is the quote. Um, That film was nominated for 13 Academy Awards and won five, including the Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance. She also received the Golden Globe Award for Best Actress, um, while Andrews and her co-stars won the 1965 Grammy Award for Best Album for Children. And this is awesome. So kind of as like some revenge, Julie Andrews closed out her acceptance speech at the Golden Globes by saying, And finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all of this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner, because Jack Warner made My Fair Lady. And if he would not, if he would have taken her, Mary Poppins wouldn't have happened. And apparently My Fair Lady was in direct competition for all of the awards that Mary Poppins won. So she (laughs) shouted him out saying... Many thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all of this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack yeah. Warner. That's funny. That is like the most regal way that you could sass someone. <laughs> of like, that part was mine, but like, you know what? I got an Academy Award instead, so like, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. That's so funny. Uh-huh. I oh, thought it was wow. so funny. This is a side note, but isn't it yeah. so weird to like think back on a time period when all of these powerful names were alive and like interacting with one another like Walt Disney and like Warner of like the Warner Brothers right so it's the Warner Mm -hmm. Brothers that so like these huge megawatt companies and they're like casually at an award show it's like oh yeah yeah because you're right like it's almost it's a brand now it's like oh yeah Yeah. Disney the Warner Brothers and it's like oh yeah they were real people who were doing this at one point yeah and they were like so much more involved in a lot of it like personally yeah. whereas well, like, now yeah, we Walt don't even Disney know picked out Julie Andrews himself yeah that's crazy and, like I don't know who the CEO of Disney right now is like no I have no idea but like we all know that Walt Disney like made a ton of the decisions in the beginning so it's just a weird thought to like think about these powerful people like hanging out (laughs) yeah no I know I agree (laughs) because like and like did they realize that they really were going to like like so much a part of American culture is Disney Warner Brothers you know like are these movies and how they've stood the test of time is like so interesting I know and that their companies are still like making so much money yeah yeah and the biggest movies just a weird thing to think about it is weird so right after Mary Poppins, she took a role in apparently comedy drama war film called 
the Americanization of Emily. Apparently, she mainly took the role just because she wanted to avoid the typecasting as a nanny, um, which makes sense. Because of her role in this, the New York Times called her irresistible with a brush of sentiment, which is very nice. And she was nominated for the BAFTA Awards for Best British Act in a leading role because of this which is really cool wow yeah Um, she's later described this one as her favorite film which is a sentiment that was shared by her co-star so i just thought that was interesting because like i've never heard of that movie now i kind of want to go see it but that's her favorite movie that she's done i'm like wow her favorite movie that she's done and i've never even heard heard of of it i know that's cool. Um, so right after this in 1965 is when she stars in The Sound of Music, which was the highest grossing film of its year. Julie Andrews said that she was ashamed to admit that she thought the musical rather saccharine. Basically, though, she thought it was like excessively sweet to define oh, okay. the word that I'm not 100% sure how to say. <laughs> no, <it's> okay. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. Yeah. I mean, fair. But like... I kind of love it because of but that. But it's so good. So who cares? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a, it's a comfort movie for a reason. Mm-hmm. So re- rehearsals took place in London before filming commenced in, of course, Salzburg, Austria in 1964. Um, apparently filming was rather slow due to weather conditions in Salzburg. And uh, apparently they were lucky if they even got a single shot's worth of scenes. Which is crazy to me to think that some of those scenes were only shot one time. And I want to know which ones were. Whoa. That makes it kind of even more... Amazing? Yeah, and impressive. But it's yeah. like, wait, Like, which shot. ones of these things were done in one time? I don't know if you've heard this story. So, like, apparently there is, you know, like, the youngest girl in the seven... Gretel. Yeah, Gretel. There we go. You know the scene where they're all in the boat and they flip over when they see the Baroness and Captain Von Trapp coming back? Yeah. Um, apparently, it's like a, it's a well-known story that Julie Andrews has told where she was told like, hey, you need to watch out for that younger girl because she can't swim. And so if you watch that movie, you I mean, that part of the movie, like you can kind of see the little girl struggling, but just like still doing it. And like Andrews like grabbing her. And oh my goodness at the time I, I heard that story i'm like why didn't they just film it again but now with this i'm like oh it makes sense that maybe they actually couldn't yeah especially with like that kind of scene where they'd have yeah. to all go get dry again and then come back and do it again like <laughs> if they were it? already struggling to get like the, more than one that. shot i know yeah that's crazy I know. I thought that was crazy. Also, Salzburg, Austria is my new, is my dream vacation. So. Really? Yeah. Because, and it's partly because of the sound of music, but also if you just look up pictures, it's so beautiful. So. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get there in the next couple of years. That's my, our goal. Anyways. So as far as like her role, um, Andrews has stated that she relied on lyrics to anchor her to the film songs and utilized vocal interpretation to convey Maria's character by hanging onto words and images that they conjured um, and saying that the music still and always lives in her soul, which I thought was really nice. I know. Yeah. What I thought was interesting is that apparently that film received really mixed reviews when it first came out. Which is just interesting to me because, like, it's so beloved for me that I'm just like, what? Other people aren't in love with this movie? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Um, but still, like, they all raved about Andrew's performance in it, praised her for her air of radiant vigor, 
plain Jane wholesomeness and her ability to make her dialogue as vivid as she makes her songs, which I think is a great way of describing it. For her performance, though, as Maria Von Trapp, she won her second Golden Globe for Best Actress. Um, she was nominated a second time for the Academy Award for Best Actress and the BAFTA Award for the Best British Actress in a Leading Role. She later wrote that the gift and privilege of portraying her first three film roles would have been enough to satisfy her for a lifetime. Wow. Which I'm, I'm, I'm like, it makes me happy that like she enjoyed those movies, even though I need to still see that second one, just because I'm like, like I said, that movie means those movies especially just mean so much to me. So yeah, I just love it. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. Today, I am shouting out the Instagram account, which is called Alice Loves Drawing, which the bio is Alice Loves Drawing Flowers. And Mm. if you look at her page, she indeed loves to draw flowers. And they're Um, beautiful. And they're beautiful. I absolutely love this account. If you just like scroll through, like for each month of the year, she'll like you know april march june spring like almost like do the letters with different flower arrangements and it's just so beautiful um or this painting of daisies i am very obsessed with and she does a lot of like process videos which i always love and they're just so beautiful and like they just bring me joy to look at i think i don't know if she like sells prints or anything like that i hope so i really want that cactus one i know right they're so cute (laughs) I have a very, (laughs) I have an obsession with cacti. (laughs) (laughs) It's bad, actually, because I'm worried that I'm only going to buy art that has cactus. I love uh, that. That's really cool, though. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know if she actually sells them. It doesn't look like she has a link. but I know there's no link there, which I'm like, I feel like she so easily could do it, but again go check her out it's alice loves drawing so i laughed out loud when i found this account and i'm obsessed with it (laughs) um her primary following and everything is on tiktok but her uh, username is wandering warhol underscore art studio like andy warhol if you think of Mm. that and she recently started a series for her daughter so her daughter wanted some art in her room and so She was like, awesome, I'll do that for you. And her daughter specifically requested certain types of dinosaurs that were dressed up or, like, looked like um, famous feminist women. (laughs) So her daughter picked out each person and picked out each dinosaur. And then everyone was so obsessed with it that she started doing more of them. So she takes requests and does them as paintings and then sells prints of them. So the first one was um ruth bader ginsburg as a dinosaur i am looking at that (laughs) and then she also did frida kahlo um which was very fitting as a triceratops because then she always has the flower crowns on which works very well um they also did um kamala harris as the madam vice president as a dinosaur and um sometimes she gives them like names that i can't quite she like mixes the dinosaur name with the i can't explain what i'm trying to say (laughs) no i get it but it's okay (laughs) yeah so she also did jane goodall it looks like um marie curie 
um, Amelia Earhart, Rosie the Riveter, and Stacy Abrella, which is another politician, I believe, and Madonna as well. If you want <laughs> some awesome feminist dinosaur art hanging in your house. <laughs> I mean, I think I kind of do. I know. I'm like, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg one is so iconic, but my favorite dinosaur is also a triceratops. So I'm like, should I do the Frida Kahlo? Or the Madonna <laughs> one has like a bejeweled. I love the Madonna one. <laughs> so like, yeah. It's amazing. So super, super funny. Um, but yeah, she just sells her prints through... Uh, Etsy. That's right. Okay. I was trying to remember. She named it Tooth Bader Ginsburg. Get it? Get it? That's so good. Anyway, you have to check out all of her names for them, too. They're all very clever. They're very funny. But a good time. And mixing two great things, art and feminism, of course. And dinosaurs, of course. I mean, you cannot go wrong. (laughs) All right. Now, back to the show. Honestly, the rest of this is just going to be like, okay, now here's everything else she did. Because, you know, like I mentioned, she's existed as just <laughs> as just Mary Poppins and Maria Von Trapp in my mind. But she has done so many other things. After completing The Sound of Music, she appeared as a guest star on the NBC TV variety show, The Andy Williams Show. Followed this television appearance with an Emmy Award winning special called The Julie Andrews Show. Um, which featured Gene Kelly and the new Christie Minstrels as guests. It aired on NBC TV in 1965. She, in 1966, she starred in Hawaii, the second high engrossing film of its year. Also in 1966, she starred opposite Paul Newman in Tom Curtin, which was directed by Alfred Hitchcock and shot at Universal Studios Hollywood. Um, She credits the director with teaching her extensively about lenses and camera work. Again, that film kind of received mixed reviews. But then the following year, she played Thoroughly Modern Millie, which I didn't know that she was in Thoroughly Modern Millie. Yeah, that's interesting. That's cool. Apparently, though, that time on her film was apparently a really pleasant distraction, kind of because it allowed her to be something of a clown because her stepfather actually died very shortly before filming. And the film was a box office success. Critics described Andrews as very much the leading lady and absolutely darling, as well as deliciously spirited and and dry. The film was nominated for several Academy Awards and Andrews scored the Golden Globe nomination for the performance. At the time, Thoroughly Modern Millie and Tom Curtin were the biggest and second biggest hits in Universal Pictures history, which is crazy. Wow. Like, these are not even her biggest movies. And at the time, they were Universal Pictures' biggest movies that had ever been. So I'm just like, oh, no big deal. This kind of gets into her more established career. Um, even though this is her established career, it's off, it doesn't have as big of the lasting roles, of course, as her early career did. She appeared in two of Hollywood's, quote, most expensive flops, which is sad. <laughs> um, there was Star in 1968 and then Dar- Darling Lily in 1970. And Darling Lily um, co-starred Rock Hudson and was actually directed by her second husband, Blake Edwards. During this time, she went through her, well, apparently, she says, she went through her usual period of insecurity during the production of Star, intensely analyzing her choices for the character. Apparently, the choreographer had to work really closely with her 
during because they had really complicated musical numbers in that and she kind of regarded that as very physically and mentally grueling and then of course with that she had divorced her first husband I don't think she was in like the best place in her life during this movie and apparently just New York Times pretty much said that the film was not one of Andrew's bests and Variety wrote that her carefully built up performance sagged with overdone hoidishness. But despite this, her performance was nominated for Golden Globe Award for Best Actress. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> and yeah. apparently because of that, she um, became really good friends with um, kid and director Robert Wise as her greatest gifts from the film. So it just shows even in the flops, there's beauty from it. You still get yeah. nominated for awards and get lifelong friends all as well. Apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then as for Darling Lily, which was the other flop, Edward apparently pitched this to Andrews two, two years before the start of production in 1968. I guess she pre-recorded original songs for the film. She cited her, the reviews to the studio marketing and post-production issues. While the film was a commercial bomb, the New York Times praised Andrew's performance, calling her an unmigitated delight and perfect centerpiece of the film, praising her coolness and precision as a comedian and singer. And she was, again, nominated for the Golden Globe Award for Best Actress. Oh, yeah. And apparently in that for that movie, though, even though it was a flop, the film ended up winning um, both the Golden Globe and the Academy Award for the Best Original Song for that movie. Well, there you go. So it's like interesting that like these are the flops, but... I'm like, they sound still like they winning awards. Very successful. So Yeah, it doesn't sound like she was ever really in a bad movie, to exactly. be honest. I like, and I wonder if maybe it's like the kind of movie that like critics are really into, but maybe just like the general public doesn't get super excited about. Like, I yeah. feel like, you know, those movies happen even nowadays where like for some reason people don't really care to see it, but it still is in all the Oscars and, you know, all of those awards. Or the opposite, where you have those weird phenomenons of movies that sell out the box offices like crazy and yet never win any awards. awards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Every Marvel movie ever. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah um, the movie world doesn't make any sense. It, it does not. I And I know very little about it. So <laughs> yeah. and this is helping even less with that. But she later wrote about that experience that nonstop success in a career is impossible, but nobody sets out to make a failure either. So... Mm. It's but like I said, I mean like it's interesting to me that they're failures when she was literally nominated for both of them and they even won an award for original songs. So yeah. Who knows? Like I said, doesn't sound like she was ever really in any bad, bad movies. movies. But this makes me want to go back and watch these movies because <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've never heard of them, but I'm like, I feel like I would like to go watch like an old obscure julie andrews movie i feel like yeah. i would enjoy that <laughs> i don't see why not i've actually i've watched a lot of like marilyn monroe's movies that weren't as well known oh, or at really? least that i didn't know about and they are all very enjoyable so yeah maybe we all need to just them. watch more vintage movie marathon movies. with just like old <laughs> movies that yeah. have gone have been forgotten after this, though, she continued working in television. 1971, she appeared as a guest at the grand opening special of Walt Disney World. Same year, she and Carol Burnett headlined a CBS special, Julie and Carol at Lincoln Center. And apparently, 1972 and at 73, she started in her own television variety series called the Julie Andrews Hour on ABC. The show won seven Emmy Awards, but was canceled only after one season. What? Right? 
I'm like, what? I had no idea that this existed. I am so confused how you could win seven Emmy Awards and then be canceled. And like, I don't know if maybe it was like her choice. Like maybe something was going on in her personal life that she didn't want to continue it. I don't know. But I'm like, I feel like seven Emmy Awards is a lot for one show. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Yeah. Again, like as I've been learning about her life and all the things she did, I'm like, this is making TV and movie world just make zero sense to me it's zero fine. sense yeah i don't think tv and um movie world is something that either of us are incredibly well versed no. in so. which clearly That's i'm so sure. weird but you know she continued 1973 through 1975 she continued her association with abc headlined a bunch of variety specials for the network 77 she guest starred in the muppet show which is cool Oh, okay. I know. I know I'm either. like, I had no idea. She was in two other movies in the 70s, The Tamarind Seed and 10. Apparently, they were both successful at the box office and by critic reviews. Hmm. Her career continues 1982. She was in the film Victor Victoria, which earned her a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in a Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical. She was also nominated for Academy Award for... Best Actress, which is her third Oscar nomination. Holy crap. I know. Her next two films were That's Life and Duet for One, um, which earned her Golden Globe nominations again, which is just okay. It's fine. In December 1987, she starred in an ABC Christmas special, Julie Andrews' The Sound of Christmas, which went on to win five Emmy Awards. It's fine okay and then two years later she was reunited for a third time with carol burnett for a variety special which aired on abc in 1989 so it's just like interesting because it's just like i i feel like i have to make note of all these like lesser performances quote-unquote lesser because they're all like not grammy emmy nominated tv specials or she gets a golden globe nomination or she wins it like even though we don't know these movies she still gets so much critical acclaim which i think just shows how much she was like at the top like everyone loved julie andrews everything she did people were like like even the flops she was nominated or people were just like yeah that one wasn't her best like it's not like they were ever like slandering julie andrews's talent because it was so undeniable that's so cool it's crazy to like hear how critically acclaimed she was even though it makes perfect sense like i'm not shocked i'm not like oh i can't believe that it's just i didn't realize how many awards that she had won over her career I agree. I did not realize that either. But yeah, her career just honestly continued. In the summer of 1992, she started her first television sitcom, which was again short-lived. It was called Julie, aired on ABC for only seven episodes, which is also interesting to me. Yeah, so she just kept doing stuff, honestly. Between 1994 and 1995, she recorded two solo albums. The first saluted the music of Richard Rogers, and the second paid tribute to the words of Alan J. Lerner. And then in 1995, she starred in the stage musical version of Victor Victoria, and that was her first appearance in Broadway in a Broadway show in 35 years. It opened on Broadway on October 25th of 1995 at the Marquee Theater, and it later went on the road for a world tour. And then apparently, this is interesting, she was the only Tony Award nominee for the production, but she actually declined the nomination, saying that she could not accept because she felt that the entire production was snubbed. Oh. So 
I feel like it shows that she's very loyal, you know, that she obviously had worked on this production with everyone else. And because they weren't getting the credit they deserved, she was like, nope, I'm not. I'm declining, which I think is just really interesting. So after this is when, like you mentioned at the beginning, she lost her voice. And this is what happens. So she was forced to quit that show, Victor Victoria, at the end of the Broadway run in 1997 when she developed hoarseness in her voice. Um, she subsequent, Because of that, she underwent surgery at New York's Mount Sinai Hospital, um, apparently to remove non-cancerous nodules from her throat. Um, though it's kind of weird that she later stated the hoarseness was due to a certain kind of muscular striation that happens on the vocal cords itself. Um, which was the result of strain from Victoria Victoria. She kind of added like, I didn't have cancer. I didn't have nodules. I didn't have anything. I don't know what the truth is. But anyways, because of that, she emerged from that surgery with permanent damage that destroyed the purity of her singing and made her speaking voice raspy. In 1999, she filed a malpractice suit against the doctors at this hospital, including Scott Kessler and Jeffrey Libin, who had operated on her throat. Um, originally the doctors assured her that she would regain her voice within six weeks. Um, but her stepdaughter, Jennifer Edwards said in 1999, it's been two years and her singing voice still hasn't, hasn't returned. Apparently that lawsuit was settled in September of 2000 and for an undisclosed amount. So I have no idea what happened there. Can you imagine being the doctor that messed up Julie Andrews's singing voice? Like (laughs) Oh, how could you? I would never practice again. I know. I'd be like, crap, that was the worst possible thing I could have done. Could have literally ever done. (laughs) Yeah, that's really scary, though. And it's so sad because she's like admitted that she's never recovered from the botched attempt to remove nodules from her vocal cords in 97. Her famous four octave soprano was then reduced to a fragile alto. She was quoted at the time saying, I can sing the hell out of Old Man River because she probably could suddenly sing really low. From 2000 though onward, she kind of like continued on trying to get her voice back um there was a doctor who operated on her four times and while he was able to improve her speaking voice she was unable to restore her full singing voice so it's just like it's so sad and like i like as i was reading this it like almost made me emotional just because it's like i mean personally i like health wise i've been like dealing with stuff that have made it difficult for me to sing and like it just sucks when like when that's what you do and that's what you want to yeah. do. And I can't imagine to have such a long, amazing career like this and then to like have that taken away from you because because that's like, the tricky thing. It's like it's your voice, like it's your body. Like if something goes wrong with your body, like you can't there's not like another alternate way of doing it, you know? Yeah. Mm hmm. And it just makes me, it makes me so sad to think about that. Tragic. I can't even imagine. Like, that would be so frustrating. Mm-hmm. Especially, like, them saying, like, oh, you'll get your voice back in a couple of weeks. Like, no big deal. Like, treating it like such a minor procedure and then to, like, never have your voice fully recover. Yeah, I agree. It makes me very, very sad. Um, Like you mentioned, soon after this, though, she appeared in The Princess Diaries which was her first Mm -hmm. Disney film since Mary Poppins, which I didn't realize it had been so long, but 
yeah, that was her return to Disney was the Princess Diaries. Um, and it was iconic. And it was <laughs> iconic. The amazing Queen of Genovia. Yes. Princess Diaries 2, of course, came back, which is a sequel. Um, in the film, she sang on on set for the first time since having throat surgery. Um, the song, which was Your Crowning Glory, which she did a duet with Raven Simone. Apparently, the, the song was set in a very limited range, so it could accommodate for her recovering voice. This is so nice. So the film's music supervisor recalled that Andrews nailed the song on the first take. I looked around and I saw grips with tears in their eyes, which just makes yeah. me, I'm like, that must have just been such an amazing moment for her where like, even if, like, obviously she knew what she was event once capable of, but to even still like just be able to do something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the fact, like, ugh, I just can't even imagine. Like, she hasn't been able to sing on set for so long, and then you're standing there, and you get to witness it. And Yeah. Like, oh, I would have <laughs> loved to have been there in that moment. <laughs> like, of course, it brought tears to their eyes. That probably was such a magical moment. Like, mm-hmm. Julie Andrews, like, the Disney... Yeah. Yeah. For just real. like singing that. Yeah. That would have been a very important moment, I'm sure. I know. You know, like I said, like, as per usual, her career continues with this amazing thing. Um, something that I thought was cool in 2005, she appeared on stage during the curtain calls for the musical of Mary Poppins at the Prince mm. Edward Theater in London, where she gave a speech just recalling her own memories for making the film and praised the cast for their new interpretation, which I thought was really nice. Yeah. Also, another thing that I forgot that she is the queen, Queen Lillian in Shrek 2. Did you oh, know yeah, that? she's the voice. She's the voice I of the queen. Remember, I remember knowing that at some point in my life. Exactly. But, like, yeah. I knew it at one point, but it totally was like, oh, yeah, she's the queen. Um, she also That's narrated cool. the movie Enchanted that I also had forgot. Oh, uh-huh. I didn't know she narrated that. She's the narrator for that. Isn't that nice? Oh. I feel like every role that she does that just becomes iconic is just like infused with magic. Like it Mary is. Poppins, like the sound of music, the queen of Genovia, the role of the queen. You know what I mean? Like Everything. it's just magical. Yes. It really is. Um, in 2007, she was honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Screen Actors Guild's Award and stated that her goals included continuing to direct for the stage at possibly to pr- produce her own Broadway musical, which I thought wow. was really cute. Cool. Um, she published Home, a memoir of my early years, which she characterizes part one of her biography from July until early August 28. She hosted Julie Andrews, The Gift of Music, which is a short tour of the United States where she sang various Rodgers and Hammerstein songs, um, which was cool. I Obviously, it probably wasn't the full singing performance, but um, yeah. I think she just did the best she could. And then in 2009, Andrews was named on the times list of the top 10 British actresses of all time, which is cool. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. I know. So as far as like, what has she been up to now? As far as like 2010 presently, she's also written a lot of books. So... May 18th of 2010, Andrew's 23rd book, okay, which she was also written with her daughter, Emma, was published, which was entitled The Very Fairy Princess, which reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list for children's book. She was the voice of the mom in Despicable Me. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Uh-huh. 
2011, she received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award and her daughter actually won a Grammy that same year for the best spoken word album for um, a book that they had done together which is amazing in 2015 she made a surprise appearance at the oscars greeting lady gaga who paid her homage by singing a medley from the sound of music which was an amazing performance by lady gaga i loved that i had no idea apparently she voiced something in aquaman i had no idea oh yeah and then more recently she was the narrator lady whistledown in the netflix drama bridgerton oh Wow. So, like, kind of seems like everything she touches turns to gold. Yeah. She has, like, the perfect voice. She has the perfect voice. Quick little rundown of her personal life. Um, So, she married set designer Tony Walton in 1959. Apparently, they first met in 1948 when she was appearing at the London Casino in the show Humpty Dumpty. So, that's funny. <laughs> her being the egg led to her first husband. <laughs> <laughs> um Love in September, that. yeah for real <laughs> um in 1962 their daughter emma was born and they ended up divorcing in 1967 she ended up marrying director blake edwards in 1969 and became the stepmother to his children jennifer and Joff- joffrey goffrey whatever this is also interesting in the 70s um they adopted t- two um, vietnamese daughters amy or amelia in 1974 and joanna in 1975 um, and they remained married until his death in 2010. And she is a grandmother to nine and a great grandmother to three. Aww. I know. So I feel like she's just lived a very good, rich life. Yeah. Let me just go over her overall achievements here. With a career spanning nearly eight decades, she has been the recipient of several accolades, including one British Academy Film Award, one Academy Award, two Emmy Awards, and three Grammy Awards. Andrews was made a Disney legend in 1991 and has been honored with an honorary Golden Lion as well as the AFI Life Achievement Award. In 2000, Andrews was made a Dame by Queen Elizabeth II for services to the performing arts. Wow. So it's like, as far as our usual theme of underappreciated... I do feel like she is properly appreciated for what she did. But similar to Jane Austen, it's personally underappreciated. You know what I mean? That I feel like people have forgotten just how amazing she was, like, in her glory days. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And even now, like, I mean, she's still in movies. Like, Bridgerton was a super big deal. Yeah. And she was the narrator for that. So it's just crazy, like... I think she's still definitely top of her game. Yeah, she's like underestimated for sure. I I think so too. I hope we've got another two decades of Julie Me Andrews left to at I least. I will truly be devastated when yeah. when she if she is to ever pass away. But yeah, so there's Julie Andrews. I hope you get a greater appreciation for her from listening to this. Also like as far as like what she's overcome as far as like and what she's lost like with losing her voice yeah like i think just like the idea of like losing your voice to like never get it back is so truly devastating you know like i just ah, it makes me so sad and and she was able to you know like she obviously hasn't really sung as much since but i think still been able to continue to work act voiceover because that's like you said she has an amazing just voice (laughs) 
for speaking. That's yes. so distinct. I'm not even a singer and I would hate to lose like my singing voice. Yeah. Just because I like enjoy singing for fun. Singing's so fun. <laughs> yeah. So like I can't even imagine how hard that must have been to go from like a four octave soprano to like barely being able to pull out a few notes. Like that's tragic. And also it makes me so sad too because it's like how many like tours like you know like oh, if i yeah. could have had the chance to see julie andrews perform these songs oh like that's She'd all probably i probably still be going like oh yeah it sounds like she loves it i doubt she would have stopped she would have she been like have performing just today singing. yeah yeah now because now she just does it in the way that she can like up until yeah. literally last year which so is amazing. that's just really really sad that that happened but it doesn't look like it stopped her from having a good career. So exactly. that's good. And also she has two memoirs out. I am I have purchased one of them. There was no way I was gonna finish before we recorded today. But mm, if you wanna okay. check it out, I think she I think it's cool. It seems like she wants to go into pretty great detail of her life. So her memoirs aren't just like one book. She's releasing them like in multiple parts. So Whoa, that's I think really part cool. one I think her most recent one is called like My Hollywood Years or something like that. So you can check that out. She's like always gonna be one of those that you just You just love. Yeah, you just love them. Like, wow, she can Thank you. do no wrong. Like literally what you said, everything she touches just turns to gold. It really does. <laughs> even her flop she's like academy award winning so whatever all right well everyone thank you very much for tuning in hope you enjoyed learning about the amazing life and legacy that is still continuing of julie Andrews. yeah if you've been a fan of the podcast don't hesitate to leave a review share it with your friends i feel like we're reaching more people recently which is making us very happy so mm-hmm. help us continue spreading the good word of women artists whether they be forgotten or just maybe a little bit underappreciated than we think they should be so um you can follow us on instagram at mm-hmm. more than amused.podcast we also have a tiktok that has some fun things on it um so just follow along we're happy to have you here and we'll be back next week <laughs>